It really does feel to me and many others I have spoken with that observing the vast majority of American evangelicals rallying to the side of then-candidate and now-President Donald Trump has been like getting the chance to go back in time and observe Satan's three attempts to tempt Jesus. Except this time, Jesus' body, the church, basically replied to Satan, Hell yes, we'll put self-preservation ahead of trusting God, receive earthly power in exchange for worshiping a human political huckster, and commit suicide as a 270-year-old movement just to prove our ego. But I've also observed a number of evangelical voices desperate to hold forth a different picture of evangelicalism, downplaying the last couple of years as just an aberration that doesn't reflect true evangelical Christianity. Or maybe it just goes back a few decades and we can blame it on the rise of the religious right in the late 70s and 80s. Oh wait, but then that doesn't explain evangelicalism's no-show during the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. One has to wonder, at some point, if the foundations upon which sits the idols that American evangelical Christians worship today were laid all the way back during its founding. But that is a subject for another time. In part one of this two-part series, we introduce the first idol of American evangelicalism, that of superiority. This is seen particularly in intellectual hubris and American nativism or nationalism. The last three idols are really a natural outflow or progression from the first, what C.S. Lewis might have called the great sin in his classic work, Mere Christianity. The idol of power or control. Once a group of people have convinced themselves of their own superiority, it's only logical that they should be the ones in charge. So when Franklin Graham and others talk about the need for Christians to serve as elected officials in order to be a witness and to represent a Christian worldview, that's code for, if you're not a Christian, you ultimately don't know what the hell you're doing, where Christians, by nature of their own superiority, do. So move over so we can institute what we know is best for everyone. This is theologically based in a so-called soft version of the doctrine of Reconstructionism or Dominionism. The assumed nativism and ethnocentrism of the first idol then applies this theology in a mandate to take America back for God and a moral mandate to stop the demise of our great nation by conservative Christians assuming their rightful place at the top of the seven mountains of culture. In every city of the world, an unseen battle rages for dominion over God's creation and the souls of people. This battle is fought on seven strategic fronts looming like mountains over the culture to shape and influence its destiny. Over the years, the church slowly retreated from its place of influence on these mountains, leaving a void now filled with darkness. When we lose our influence, we lose the culture, and when we lose the culture, we fail to advance the kingdom of God. And now, a generation stands in desperate need. It's time to fight for them and take back these mountains of influence. Here's an axiom with regard to power. When you're obsessed with it, you will do whatever it takes to get more of it. The worship of this idol has been on full display over the last two years as evangelical leaders and theologians have provided religious cover for politicians who promised to give them what they wanted, position and power to implement their kingdom vision for America. The end result, in terms of the election, just confirmed that power is clearly worshipped among the evangelical masses and not just among their populist leaders. Meanwhile, they all continue to say that they worship a savior who expressly rejected his disciples' hopes of instituting a political empire. The Idols of Convenience and Comfort I have grouped these two idols together because, while distinct, they are very complementary to each other. It's kind of like entrenched dictators. Once they have assumed the throne and begun their reign, selective ethics and amassing excessive wealth and physical comfort at the expense of others seems to go hand in hand. Convenience 
When you assume superiority and therefore the right to exert power or control over others, a curious thing often happens. You become selective in terms of the moral standards you live by and those you demand of others. American evangelicals have strutted about their moral high horse on the issues of life and the family, but only narrowly applied it to the issues of abortion and homosexuality. The hypocrisy has been glaring to almost everyone else but themselves. Some have attempted to paint a different picture of evangelicals as a group that in reality holds much more sympathetic views to those affected by systemic injustice, such as their supposed support for immigration reform. But everyone knows that actions speak louder than words, including polls, and their political silence or indifference on things such as the global refugee crisis and U.S. resettlement policy shows that their moral priorities lie where it will cost them the least. In doing so, American evangelicals are carrying on in the great tradition of the Pharisees. Comfort Consumerism, by its very nature, is driven by pleasure, not sacrifice. And so American evangelicalism has become a perfect example of the industry of religion. With few, often tightly controlled, exceptions, the vast majority of church life is designed around the wishes of the consumer. I know this because I participated in it. I often tell people that a part of my journey was realizing that I had become a provider of religious goods and services to consumer Christians. Sometimes expressions of true Christian ministry can even be viewed as inconvenient. Years ago, I recall hearing a board member in a church bemoan that while they applauded the work of my parents in bringing people with developmental disabilities into the church, these people did not make, quote-unquote, significant giving units in comparison to, for example, working upper-middle-class families. Additionally, their occasional moans or verbal expressions during the service were distracting to the, quote-unquote, worship. This is just one example that I've observed as a widespread pattern. Within the trade, we often use certain language, like church shopping, perfectly satirized in this short video by the comedian John Christ. Nick and Molly just moved to the city and can't agree on what they want. They're young and energetic and looking for a new church home. We'll take some personality tests, tour the sites, ask some questions, and based on taste, experience, and location, we'll find them the perfect congregation. I'm Corey Clark, and welcome to Church Hunters. Over the course of my own 17-year career in the pastoral profession, I heard several colleagues refer to the principle of bucks and butts as a key indicator of church health. Ironic, again, given that the founder of the faith lived as a homeless man. Well, we'll return to the themes of these four idols in future posts, along with trying to chart a course forward for a lifestyle that I believe would be far more honoring to the life and teachings of Jesus. One thing that I am sure of is that idols and the people and their institutions that worship them ultimately fail. Faith, on the other hand, perseveres, and this not because of creeds and councils, but due to the relentless curiosity of humanity as it intersects with divine mystery and love. Well, thank you for listening to this podcast. And remember that you can check out more of my takes on faith, social justice, and popular culture, along with other life-inspiring musings, by visiting www.curtelewis.com. If you enjoyed and benefited from this and other publications featured on my website, would you take a few minutes to show your support? First, you can share it with your friends via social media, text, message, email, word of mouth, pigeon bird, cave art, whichever you prefer. Second, if you're listening on iTunes, take a few seconds to subscribe to this podcast and to give it a positive review. Lastly, you can help me to continue to produce these podcasts by making monthly or one-time financial contributions. Click on subscribe support on the website to learn more.
Again, thanks so much for listening.